Hi, I'm Shereen Patrick, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. One of the more interesting brands that I've been following recently has been Hatch. It's founded all the way back in 2011, which feels like a lifetime ago, uh, just, just for the record. Hatch is all about the mom, or the mamas, as they call it. Starting with clothes, moving on to beauty, Hatch has made a lot of moves recently that I've found very, very interesting. And they're doing it all in a distinctly beautiful way, which is what I really like. Joining me today, founder Ariane Goldman. Hi, Ariane. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good. So thank you so much for joining us. I, I want to start right from the beginning because you've you've had a really interesting story that has been has been written about quite a bit. But why did you start Hatch kind of day one? Why why did it exist? What was the genesis of the brand itself? The genesis was really what didn't exist out there. I was pregnant with my first daughter and um, looking for something to make me feel better. I was confused, excited, going through all of these emotions and was really surprised that there was not nothing on my computer or anywhere I could go that made me feel like someone had product to offer me during this time. Um, and I figured if I was looking for a solution, if I was looking for clothing or a conversation that made me feel better during this time, why wasn't it there? And if I needed it, there must be millions of other women that needed to. And you had a background in fashion, but also in being an entrepreneur. So talk a little bit about that. I kind of have a split brain. Um, I love business, but I'm also fashion savvy. So I started my career at American Express, working up the corporate ladder for about um, eight years, but always wanting to express myself a little bit more creatively and do something with my hands and get, you know, get into business. And so when I was getting married um, in 07, I realized that there was a white space in the bridesmaids dress market. And I decided to make my own bridesmaids dresses for the wedding so that I could celebrate the shapes and sizes of all my my beautiful friends and, and cousins in the wedding. I love it because both of those categories, it's like maternity, pre-hatch, and then bridesmaids, like two things that you're just like, oh, great. I have to put that on? Like, great. Exactly. Well, that's the whole thing is why are you spending money and investing in pieces that just either don't make you smile or you can't wear again. And that always stumped me and made me realize we could be smarter as women, as shoppers, as consumers. There's got to be a way to solve this. And so the first concept was based on a dress that wraps over 15 ways where you can wear it again after the wedding. Um, hence the, the name was Two Birds because you're killing two birds with one dress. And then I took that concept across the world. I opened in Australia, Toronto, London, L.A. and New York um, and got on the Martha Stewart show and just kind of had this golden product that just took me to the moon, which was so exciting. And then I got pregnant and I realized that there was another white space in the market, um, as I just mentioned, uh, really not talking to women like me, looking for something special to make me feel better. So you, uh, it's funny, and I, I mentioned this right at the beginning, but you've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> that we me. have, <laughs> not you personally, um, but a lot of people that we've had in the show, you know, relatively newer founders, um, people, or newer companies, they've maybe serial founders, but they've founded companies in the last year or two. And there has been in the last couple of years, a bit of a sort of explosion in this so-called kind of direct-to-consumer slash commerce startup space. But you were there from the beginning. You were starting at a time where it wasn't, as easy to start a business as it is today. What was the most difficult part of starting Hatch? And what did you learn from the Two Birds experience that kind of you carried through into launching this business? Yeah, so Two Birds was an amazing um, business model in terms of no inventory, getting paid up front. For every girl you market to, you get five dresses ordered based on the bridesmaids, um, no returns, all, all good stuff. But it was quite analog. So we had a website, but it was by appointment only, and there was no way to check out online. This was back in 07. So e-commerce was just on the rise. Warby Parker hadn't been hadn't started yet. So um, D2C wasn't really the business model that you needed to kind of you know start something in. Sure, you don't have Shopify and sort of this like 
click of the fingers, start a business kind of thing. Totally. You saw it coming, but you still had to go through the old school PR way, developing a product, getting relationships, getting press in print and on TV. Um, and then when I started Hatch, the only way to really start the business was D2C, knowing that this was the way that people were moving into shopping. And so totally different business model. It required a lot more investment up front into, um, you know, I developed a proprietary website around um, Hatch at the beginning, thinking that that was the only way to go. It's just funny how how long ago it seems and how much I've learned since. Um, but the struggle really with Hatch um, has been really because it's so niche. And a lot of people didn't believe in the category at the time. Mm-hmm. I think over the last eight years, especially with the fact that women are now at the forefront and we're, we're being heard and our voices are being heard and Instagram and social media and the fact that you can celebrate the way you look at any time in your life. Um, that's all helped. But when I launched Hatch, none of that really you know, was around. And so a lot of these publications wouldn't cover the category because it was taboo for uh, anyone to celebrate a growing body. Um, and it was just a lot harder. And so the hustle was just much thicker, I would say. <laughs> I like that much thicker. Um, well, let, let's sort of delve a little bit deeper into that. So you, you launched in this category. You're like, OK, I'm going to go direct to consumer. Who were you seeing around you, not necessarily in your category, but just in similar businesses that you said, OK, consumers are moving this way. And what did you have to do in terms of education? Because it really seems like that was the missing piece. People didn't seem to understand, A, why this business should exist, even though there was a clear reason for it to. And then how did you start connecting those dots? Yeah, I mean, it was really it was really challenging. I, I built this beautiful website with branding I was so proud of. I started with 12 key pieces. And I remember um, going away for the weekend with my husband and um, saying to him about three months later, I might have made a mistake here because not a lot of people are coming to this site. Like, what did we do? We just took the savings from Two Birds and put it into Hatch. And nobody's <laughs> well, had you, coming. Had you spent money on anything? Like, had you done kind of, okay, I'm going to market this. I'm going to do that. Because I think it's like that distribution piece that, again, D2C sort of trip up on in the early days. Like, well, I built this thing. Nobody's here. Yeah, I mean, totally. And at the time, there was really no cost to acquire customers, so to speak, right? That that language didn't really exist. So the spend was really on the, business, on the website development. Okay. I basically lent myself $200,000 to start the business. And um, in that money allowed me to build a website to, I did believe in PR at the time, because um, that was really the only way to get out there. Um, and then, obviously, the cost of development and samples and some inventory to get started, but started small. Um, and so, just on that note, I manufactured in New York City. Um, I still manufacture 70% of the collection here in New York City. Um, but allowing me to be so close to the factory allowed me to kind of cut small um, mm-hmm. and be reactive to what was working. And that helped me with inventory costs and the investment there. So you so you started, you weren't really spending, kind of, you again, it was a different market, sort of the Facebook, Instagram being so expensive time. That was not, that was not the case at the time. When did you start feeling like, okay, this may be a business? Because it's still a ghost town, right? We're still taking you all the way back that it's a ghost town and then something changed. Yeah, you know, you hear if if they build it, if you build it, they will come. Well, they didn't come. They <laughs> don't was, come. Yeah. <laughs> and it was quite scary. Trust me, time. I work in publishing. <laughs> so then what? So um, I remember, again, talking to my husband, being away this weekend, and, and lo and behold, the next day, um, the style section wrote a piece on on the brand and the fact that I was actually doing something out of the box. And even though the Times doesn't necessarily drive conversion, it drove some sort of spark that just started to connect um, the brand in the universe. And from then on, transactions slowly and surely started to come through, some more press opportunities, one thing leads to the next. And I was um, having a chance to tell my story. What also really helped at the very beginning was just organic um, 
social love for the brand and um, product placements because, you know, when you're it's easy to be the coolest kid on the block when there's nobody else on the block. And there really aren't a lot of players in this space. And so celebrities and their stylists very quickly gravitated towards Hatch when they had an event or a talk show appearance or something, mm-hmm. which enabled me to get the product on someone famous. And then if you remember Us Weekly and People magazine, the As Seen On used to be a very big way to shop. And so that was the huge win at the you know the first couple years of the business was to get um, Gwen Stefani wearing the Hatch jumpsuit and spotted in Us Weekly. And so that was kind of the beginning of of having the product shown to the world and them come to me. You know what I can hear people just thinking right now? Just like, oh, this sounds great, but attribution. How do you know it was working? <laughs> so I mean, this, I mean, again, you, you were just starting out. It made sense. But volume started increasing, right? Yeah. You hadn't got the store yet. Why did you decide that, okay, now we need a store? Because that happened way later. And I'm a little bit surprised about that just because we've sort of seen kind of a a pretty predictable playbook at this point. You launch with either one hero product or sort of a few very key pieces. Things start going well. Spend a lot of Instagram, which you weren't doing. Spend a lot on Facebook. Realize that you're going to hit a ceiling. Start a retail store and then things start moving a lot. But you sort of waited quite a while. Mm. What was business like and why wait? So what I'm seeing today in the last couple of years is kind of this beautiful brand in a box kind of approach. Um, Hatch has been built in a totally different way. Um, really, when building a brand, my definition of building a brand is from ground up and real authenticity where you're connecting with the customer and you know what they're looking for so you can just make better product and speak directly to them. Um, I don't think that can be bought. I don't think that that can be something that's just plug and play. I think it's a real... Um, from the ground, uh, experiential way, and maybe a little bit of a longer lead uh, way to build a brand. And that's kind of where I am. And that's what took me so long to understand that retail would work. So just to backtrack a little bit, I took the brand on the road for the first few years um, in tr- for, with trunk shows um, all across the states, meeting with pregnant women to really provide them the product in person, but also to listen to them about what would make their lives easier. How could Hatch and give them what they wanted? What solutions can I provide them? And when I would be meeting with them in person, they would spend two to three X what they would were spending on the website. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge indicator to me that retail was a huge opportunity for us to not only make these women feel better, but make more money. And so um, I had two big ideas about four years ago. One was to create a beauty line that made women feel um, equally as supported in their medicine cabinet with non-toxic solutions to help them during this time and also retail. And so both of those were capital intensive ideas. And that's when I realized that I had to do a friends and family round. So I bootstrapped the brand for the first six years. Yeah, that's also quite different from a lot of the stories we're hearing today. Go back for a minute. So you go to all these trunk shows and I think that's great because I think a lot of people recognize now that you just have to talk to the consumer and also you see it in the numbers. I mean, I, I remember looking at the Casper filing and one one of the most interesting things about it was places where there were Casper stores, people even bought more online. Like there's some kind of halo effect to just the existence of a physical store, even if people don't spend the money there. Um, and it's the same effect that you see when you talk to people in real life, too. Were you just like, no, I'm not going to go wholesale because you had a great product. And yes, you sort of it was successful. You had people coming to the site, people writing about it. Why not just go to, I don't know, Bloomingdale's and say, okay, carry this. And that's all. I'll just turn this into a fully wholesale brand. 
Uh, I just don't trust the middleman or the middlewoman, so to speak. Middle and when people. you're middle people, <laughs> when you're bringing a brand to life, customer connection to me is number one. And to put that control in the hands of, um, you know, turnover of staff in a department store just didn't make me feel like anyone was going to be able to tell the Hatch story and really complete the experience of the why. Why Hatch? Why do we make you feel better? And that handholding that actually does allow women to spend more and, and feel better because somebody's telling them, oh, this might look good on you in a couple of months when you're body changes. Um, I had I had, had a retail experience with Tubers, my first line, where, where I actually wholesaled um, to a very big box retailer. And I got an amazing big, big order. And it was the greatest day of my life. And then when they wanted to RTV, which is return to vendor, um, it was the worst day of the brand's, you know, history so far. So I had had that experience and learned from it. And in starting Hatch, that wisdom allowed me to kind of make my own game and, and decide what I was going to do and not do. And wholesale was not part of the original equation. Right. The irony is now, um, as the business is is just offering more and, and these different channels are really important, wholesale is coming back a little bit. Right. And it's cool because it's on my terms. And, and now I know how to play it where it's the right partners, it's the right strategy. And um, really, these wholesalers are now I think, smarter than ever and being partners where yeah. they, they don't have all the power. I'm going to make you like split your brain, as you said, for a minute about okay. this wholesale thing, because I think you've said two really interesting things hidden in there. One is a brand. And I think that's like the sort of the creative part of your brain a little bit. And I think a lot of founders talk passionately, rightfully so, about the brand that they've literally birthed and how important it is and how protective they feel of it and how they're worried that going wholesale or going on Amazon or whatever it is will somehow chip away at the edges of it. It doesn't feel like your baby anymore. And that's hard. Was that how much of that was a concern? And sort of is there a way to protect against it as you're now kind of growing up, you've figured it out, you've done it before and now Hatch is a far more established brand than it was like in 2012 or something. Um, how do you start even, I don't know, putting that down on a list and saying, okay, this is, these are the things I will ask for. Cause I think a lot of people have the same concerns. They want to grow, but they don't want their baby to sort of be chipped away at. Sure. So there are people out there that are very clearly making a stride. Um, I think Nordstrom is an ex incredible example of big box retailers who are um, making an effort to be playing locally with smaller brands and connecting directly with customers. And we had an incredible experience with them last year doing the pop-in with Olivia Kim um, over Mother's Day. And we were able to bring the Hatch experience into eight locations and meet and greet women in each local market. And it was bringing the brand into a department store. Right. And it was a win-win on both sides. So we got the wholesale relationship and it was the partnership from Nordstrom that allowed us to believe again that there are people out there that can kind of fulfill this model, but also not dilute the brand. Amazon, not in the cards? I'm so curious about Amazon. Uh, I'm not going to say it's not in the cards. I just think that there has to be a way to test and learn before you kind of give up the brand to do that. And I think we, we can figure that out. I'm just not there yet. There's a lot of stuff on our horizon. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in your mind. We're taking a quick break for our sponsor and we'll be right back. Okay, so we're, I'm, I talked about sort of the one side of the brain with you and I want to talk with the other one when it comes to the wholesale relationship. Is there a way to build, I make, I'm pulling a number out of thin air, but is there a way to build a $100 million, $150 million brand without, without going either wholesale or going Amazon or doing something like that? Can you build a purely DTC brand that crosses to those levels? And I'm asking theoretically. I don't know the answer, but if we were to play, I would say I'm not so sure. I think this omni-channel cross-functional business to get the brand out 
to that many people, it requires different touch points. And you need the help of um, not only, you know, Instagram and Google, but you need the help of retailers to get it out there and distribution partners. And I think that that's just the nature of the game. But it can be done in a in a really authentic, beautiful way. I just think it's going to take a little bit more time. And that's why... Uh, particularly to hatch, particularly to hatch. I'm not in a crazy rush um, <laughs> because I really believe that this is going to be a household brand that's going to be here for a long, a long time. Well, it helps that you don't have a giant, giant injection of cash giving you some sort of crazy valuation that's written about in TechCrunch and then puts a lot of pressure on you. Crash and Goods burn, and yeah, crashing and burning <laughs> is not in in the cards for me. So um, fortunately, I have some investors that are on my speed, that um, trust my vision, that are very helpful in terms of helping me kind of um, rock climb this journey. Um, and so far, so good. I think the theme really this far, so far this year has been on this podcast kind of sustainable growth. Like I've heard what you said you know, in various shapes and forms from other founders so much more. And it does feel a little bit like that era of growth at all costs. They never said it, but it felt certainly like it, like pump the money into advertising, like just do it, do it, do it, because we need like 2x growth every single, every every half year almost. It, it feels like it's kind of over. I don't know. It feels like people are just being a little bit more circumspect of it around kind of their growth plans. I mean, is I'm asking you to take your hatch off, hat off for a minute, but is that is that fair? Does that make sense to you? Is like overall kind of what's happening in retail right now? A lot of great founders, great ideas, but things seem to be calming down. Sort of reality seems to have hit people. Which inevitably, I think it, it always does, right? So to just have that long-form view of what happens if you blow this thing up, then what, right? I mean, if it's not sustainable and it's in somebody else's hands at a value that, you know, isn't real, I mean, it's from a founder's perspective that that's just really sad to me is that you're just inflating something that eventually is just going to pop. Yeah. And so um, I do think that the reality is setting in and that it's just so unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and what does that look like? And what does growing a brand really mean? And how do you get to those numbers, but the harder way from ground up instead of top down? There's been all this talk, too, that I find interesting around, and I'm curious to hear your point of view on it, is, oh, this is just like the dot-com bubble. Like, this thing we're seeing with DC is just like what happened um, in in 2000, and you sort of saw this all this crashing happening. And I do find it interesting because I've heard this theme of, like, well, a lot of people applied kind of software principles to consumer brands. It doesn't really make sense. Um, is that true? Is that is that what is really happening? Again, take your hatch hat off, but is it fair to compare the two, or are these just completely different market forces? I think it's definitely fair to compare the two. They're very different, but I think just in terms of these big blowouts and then, you know, these gigantic valuations and going to, to nothing, I mean, it's just devastating. So that's very similar. Um, that's very similar. What happens to those brands? What happens when that balloon pops, right? I mean, why are these great ideas all of a sudden just being beaten up by inflation and numbers and greed. You know, sometimes I just, I find myself um, just wondering what it's all worth if you're not actually building something. You know, if your brand isn't as authentic, when you put numbers behind it and dollars behind it and you're just stepping on that gas and you're blowing it up, it just feels like uh, you've taken your eye off what really matters. It doesn't feel worth it. 
Uh, not to me. Um, I'm listen. Hatch is going to be a big brand. We're going to cross that right. line. It again. It's probably more painstaking. We're not buying it. We're buying some of it, but not all of it. Um, and that's my vision. But I just want to do it the right way. Makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about kind of going into beauty and kind of expanding what Hatch was hatched as. Um, I've been wanting to say that. The whole time. <laughs> um, why did you decide to do it? And, and I'm curious about what you were hearing from your existing consumers. Like, was this something that they were like, "Hey, why don't you make this?" Or was this something that always was in the back of your mind. Yeah, again, it was listening to my customer and the same way with clothing, there weren't options. I was hearing these wonderful girls talk about how their best friend recommended something or they they read something on a blog or this doctor said this. And it was all this information just coming in and nobody really having a home base of trust of, of someone telling them, I've got you and, and I know what you need during this time. And so I figured if we could do that from a collection standpoint and clothing, why not offer them the same experience um, that they can put on their body safely, um, where it's a one-stop shop where if you're coming for some sort of hand-holding around what you can invest in to make yourself feel better, why not have the lotions and potions that also complement that time? And so it was just logical to me that a next category expansion for us would be beauty. Much harder, much longer development times, um, but, but really margins? worthwhile. Um, it's funny, yeah, good margins, but right. because our volume isn't gigantic right now, not yet, but we'll okay. get there. Yeah, because yeah, I, I do think sort of the beauty or beauty and wellness explosion has been just fascinating to watch. I mean, lots of great product being developed. You're seeing the big companies also get very in interested and involved, and you're seeing a lot of brands kind of start and really do really well um, recently. And beauty is just interesting because it feels hot for a variety of reasons, but also from a business perspective, once you get to the scale, you yeah. can make some real money. It's awesome. <laughs> it's great. Again, being in a niche category, um, you know, it's very specific to this customer, but it's so awesome to be able to offer the mama to be, you know, these options that she didn't have in one place, you know, before. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your store. You do yes. a lot more in that store than just sell stuff. Mm. It's it's been <laughs> what else do you do? the best. Uh, we unite people, uh, not to sound hokey, but it has just been so much more than a place to transact. Um, I wanted to open hatch to provide a three-dimensional experience of the brand where you can scratch and sniff us and kind of smell the candle and and see the art and actually feel what the brand means but what's happened is we've been able to activate educators and um, have seminars everything from wanting to be a mom maybe not wanting to be a mom infertility uh, miscarriages to lactation consultants sleep experts anything that kind of touches a woman during this phase of, of her thought process we've been able to have the conversations um, under our roof which has been I, you know, I started the company to make women feel better from a product standpoint. Never did I imagine that we were going to be able to foster a conversation that actually made people smile and cry and be thankful. And it really had nothing to do with the transaction. So um, just the meaning of the brand exploded when I opened my first retail store. Um, and to me, that halo effect of what that does for the brand is just untouchable. Yeah. And also unmeasurable. Unmeasurable. Yeah. Yes. And I love I, yeah, I love to measure things, but this one this was... This one is all right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> uh, what does your retail expansion plan look like? So we have a store um, on Bleecker Street in the city um, in Los Angeles by Brentwood Country Mart. We're opening our third store on the Upper East Side in March. Um, and then hopefully a fourth store in Texas um, come Q3. It's a good time to, you know, engage in some real estate arbitrage, right? Yes, <laughs> okay. it is a good time. Finally, the landlords are starting to, to work with us. Yeah. Um, so that's a good time. And again, these are more, um, I'm calling them com community retail um, spaces just because we're doing so much more than selling stuff. Okay. I guess my last question, kind of, where do you want to go next? I mean, yes, you want to keep growing the business. You want to have more people buy stuff. You want to have more stores. 
do you want to go into different categories? Do you want to, how do you think of kind of the stretchability of the brand itself? Because you you started, you know, okay, clothing, then you went sort of beauty, wellness, but again, staying in that like very specific niche place. You're seeing other people kind of start dabbling in here. Where do you go? I'm going towards conversation, believe it or not. I feel we offer a lot of categories right now, and we are the world of, and I'm really proud of being a a home base for women. Um, What I am now aiming towards is community and conversation building. And so um, in a couple of weeks, we're launching a content platform to support the product um, where we're going to be having a lot of these experts and these women and these testimonials and and just real uh, female woman perspective on motherhood um, come to life through the Hatchway website so that women who can't come to New York or LA to like take part in some of these experiences can actually experience them online. Content has been a big part I think of a lot of brands like yours who sort of are so brandy I'm going to call them like they're very focused on on who they are. What's the hardest part of starting to build out content? It's a different muscle. Yeah I don't know how to run kind of a content business so to speak so I'm not looking at it as part of the business just yet. What I'm doing it it hasn't been hard because all I'm doing is surfacing some of these conversations which it's been quite easy and fluid and authentic and that's why I'm having so much fun with it because it just feels like the natural next step and so if women can come to Hatch and be reading and learning and just be given the information they need to make their most you know their best decisions um, and we happen to have a sweater that makes them feel awesome (laughs) while they're reading that article um, so be it. But again, I want them to look at the brand for, you know, for so much more than just product. And I do believe that that'll pay it forward from from a revenue standpoint. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Ariane, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Pierre BNMA, who also made our amazing theme music. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Head to your iTunes store, search for a show and leave us a review. We'll be back next week.